Welcome back to another episode of the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we are broadcasting from just outside Washington, D.C. Please check out our show notes today for more information about Smithsonian Associates and their wonderful programs. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series, is dedicated to fostering thoughtful dialogues on subjects that matter. We are honored to have Calder Walton with us today. Calder Walton is a previous guest on the show, a favorite of mine, as well as our audience. Calder Walton is a Smithsonian associate and a historian specializing in intelligence and global security at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Calder Walton has deep dived into newly declassified records shedding light on the intelligence narratives that were foundational in shaping the Cold War. These revelations not only provide new angles on infamous espionage cases such as the five Cambridge spies and Aldrich Ames, but also explore unidentified Russian moles within British or U.S. intelligence agencies and the Kremlin's long history of political assassination. Calder Walton will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes for more details on Calder Walton's presentation at Smithsonian Associates, the title of which is Intelligence, the New Cold War. Calder Walton has written the new book, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West, and will read a passage from his book now revealing so much about what we are dealing with in terms of the new Cold War. What I thought I'd do is read a passage that, uh, to my mind, uh, reveals so much about what we are dealing with that we're seeing in the news today with Putin and Ukraine. Um, and this is, to my mind, really the beginning of the story that we, we're seeing, as I say, unfold in real time right now. Um, and the passage, I talk about the 1991 coup, uh, attempted coup in Russia. It was a hardline coup, um, which uh, the plotters, including the uh, senior people in the KGB, tried to overthrow Gorbachev and institute a hardline reversion to communist rule. It went wrong, um, and for them, and um, the, it, the the passage is about how the British ambassador in Moscow at the time. Um, foresaw that there would be a decade of trouble for Russia and that although the Soviet Union was disintegrating, um, Russian nationalism would, uh, in his view, raise its ugly head in the 1990s and how right he was. And so this passage is, is dealing with that. So I'll begin now. Open quote. Others in Russia felt similarly to the British ambassador. Two years earlier, a KGB officer who went by the name Volodya was doing humdrum work as deputy resident in Dresden, East Germany, near the Czech border. He collated files and watched for suspected Western spies. Dresden was a provincial sideshow for the KGB in East Germany. The real action was to the north in Berlin, Karlshorst. In December 1989, Volodya watched nervously as crowds engulfed the Grey Stasi headquarters in Dresden and then his own KGB building across the street. He called the center, KGB headquarters, 
for reinforcements to defend his headquarters. There was, however, no reply. Moscow was silent. The shock of watching the Soviet Union disintegrate around him would scar that officer, better known today as Vladimir Putin, profoundly. As Putin later put it, to his mind, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in the 20th century. Everything was forever until it was no more. End of quote. And I thought, Paul, that that passage, as I said, explained so much about Putin's psychology and his efforts of the, to recreate a past when he saw that Russia uh, was a great power. And that is essentially what he's trying to do right now uh, in Ukraine, um, as we are all witnessing. And that, of course, is our guest today, Calder Walton, reading from his new book, Spies, The Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. So why should we care so much about spies and the events that transpired decades ago? The reality is the world is once again seeing a rising tide of shadow wars that employ disinformation, advanced technology, and intelligence networks. Spying is at an all-time high. These tactics are used by major global players like the United States, China, and Russia to disrupt the status quo, sow discord, and perhaps even topple governments. For those of you who remember the Cold War era or are simply fascinated by the complexity of geopolitical struggles, this presentation by Calder Walton at Smithsonian Associates in our episode today promises to provide valuable insights into where we've been, where we are, and where we could be heading. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series, author and Smithsonian Associate Calder Walton. Let's jump into um, some Q&A together, Calder Walton. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your book, uh, Russia, China, all of these great things. Of course, you'll be a guest at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We're going to put links so that our audience can find out more information about your new book, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. It's getting great reviews. I want to talk to you a little bit about... Um, all of this, uh, this great stuff that you've been that you've been doing. Congratulations on the book, and um, let's just start with maybe telling us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the kind words about my book. Yeah, it's um, it's nice that it's published, and I'm needless to say thrilled that it's getting good reviews. Uh, it took six years to write. Wow. Uh, it's as old as my son, <laughs> uh, and um, I feel like in many ways it is a, a child of mine that I've now let loose into the, into the world. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's both nerve wracking, but also I'm uh, it, it's the, the subjects that it deals with um, are significant, and they 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 should be better understood by the both politicians and the public at large. And my book is an effort to do that. So my talk, I'm going to uh, at the Smithsonian in a couple of weeks time, as you said, I'm really excited about this. Um, it's going to be about the new Cold War, and it's going to be about how the intelligence agencies between East and West are at the front line of this new conflict that we, we see unfolding, both with between the West and Russia and China. And I'm trying to look at, uh, as I do in the book, historically, by saying, this struggle that is unfolding right now 
Uh, Ukraine is, if you like, the background for a much bigger conflict, it seems to me, between East and West, between liberal democracies and authoritarian regimes. Um, this has all many trappings of a new Cold War, and it has similarities and indeed uh, direct continuums with the first Cold War in the 20th century. There are certainly differences. History never repeats itself. But from the intelligence and national security perspective, the similarities between the first Cold War and what we're seeing unfold today are striking. In fact, as that passage that I read out is getting at, for Putin and for those uh, around him in the Kremlin, the Cold War, as we know it in the 20th century, never really ended. So we think in the West, we think that the Cold War finished in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And indeed, uh, Western governments saw a massive, obviously, descaling of, of operational uh, intelligence and national security establishments dealing with the former Soviet Union. That was very much, Paul, a kind of, uh, you know, job done. Um, Soviet Union doesn't exist. We don't need to worry about that anymore. And if you look at the same events through the perspective of the Kremlin under Yeltsin and this low-level intelligence officer whose career went meteoric in the 1990s, uh, Vladimir Putin, it looks very, very different. And they are driven by a humiliation uh, on the world stage that Russia is no longer, uh, no longer not even a superpower, um, but not even really a great power. It was an impoverished uh, third-rate power. And once Putin got into power in the Kremlin, when Yeltsin appointed him his successor to everyone's surprise at the end of the decade, it seems to me, if you look at Putin's speeches and the people that he has surrounded himself with, with military and KGB backgrounds, his grand strategy has been to correct that, as he sees it, catastrophe of the 20th century, the Soviet Union's collapse in 1991. It's not to say he's looking to recreate the Soviet Union or that he's really in any way a communist anymore. He's a, he's a, um, a dictator through and through. Um, there is really very little ideology there that there was in the Soviet times. But he's taken all the trappings of um, his KGB past and adapted them to the modern rule, modern way of um, ruling the, the Russia. So it seems to me that you can't understand Putin's rule without understanding the Cold War past. And then piled onto this comes China. And so the new Cold War, the, the, the world's true new superpower is, of course, China. And again, the intelligence onslaught coming from China directed at the West in the first two decades of this century has been profound. And it has been uh, a, a struggle in which Western governments were caught, in the words of one recent British report into Russia, uh, um, the British government uh, took its eye off the ball in the report's own words, as far as Russia was concerned in the first two decades of this century, at the expense of uh, counterterrorism during the war on terror, that both Russia and China saw 
the US-led global war on terror as an op- opportunity to pursue, pursue their uh, strategies against the West to overturn the international security establishment uh, and architecture created in 1991 with the Soviet Union's collapse. Both China and Russia, uh, both China under Xi and Russia under Putin, regard that settlement uh, and the U.S. quote-unquote victory in the Cold War as um, happening the wrong way. That 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 this was that this is, should not have happened that way, and that since then the U.S. has been um, a um, uh, has been a power that has been doing what it wants on the world stage uh, without taking into consideration other countries. So this is their effort that they're seeing and they're using their intelligence services and they have used their intelligence services for the recent years while we've been looking elsewhere to do that. And it's only now, it seems to me, that with the war in Ukraine and finally, finally, uh, with um, public policy conversations about Chinese intelligence that we are in the West and in the US in particular waking up to this challenge. It's riddled with complications and difficulties and uh, security dilemmas, the balance between security and national security and civil liberties. And it's going to be an absolutely um, epic, in the words of my subtitle of my book, struggle um, with all sorts of similarities, but also differences to the past. And in the book, Calderwell, you you say that we don't have so much a Putin problem, but we have a Russia problem. And that dates back in the book, at least you you use the phrase, the Cold War began before 1945. And so there were some signs that probably pointed to this tension. Maybe tell us about some of those signs between East and West and, you know, what's led to where we are today. Absolutely. So it is a very, uh, it's, it's not a nice thing to say, and, and I wish it were otherwise. But at the end of this book and this years of research, I really did think that, you know, left me wondering, okay, how much of this is to do with the person in the Kremlin at the moment, Putin, Mm -hmm. and how much of it is to do with institutional, um, you know, broader structural problems between Russia and the West and their intelligence agencies are the kind of the the silent uh, secret tools of executing uh, foreign policy on both sides. Now, so how much of this is to do with Russia uh, or is it to do with Putin? Uh, and as you said, Paul, un- unfortunately, my conclusion is that when you look at it historically, the West actually has a, a, a Russia problem and not so much a Putin problem. And really what I'm, what I'm thinking of when I say that is that if Putin were removed from power um, by a coup, um, or assassination, we, we, the natural reaction is we would all hope um, that his replacement would be more moderate, perhaps even uh, um, someone moving towards some sort of democratic rule, Alexei Navalny uh, or Vladimir Karamurza, for example, both of whom are, are in, imprisoned by Putin. I'm afraid I see the likelihood of that happening, of them being released from prison and riding uh, to power as extremely unlikely. I think it's much more likely that the person that takes over from Putin, if you know, when he uh, is no longer in power, 
will be cut from the same cloth and have a similar background to Putin. Um, Putin is symptomatic. He's the leader of a group, um, but that group, he's far from alone in his both his background and the way that he thinks. And there are simply too many vested interests uh, within Putin's Kremlin um, to allow uh, the status quo to disappear completely. The thing, the thing about Putin is that, yes, he's a former KGB officer uh, steeped in that Cold War history. But he also, um, in the 1990s, uh, in that period after that I, the, the section in the book that I read out, as I described, Putin uh, in the regional government in St. Petersburg was brought head, headlong into uh, association with and collaboration with the Russian mafia. And when Putin became head of the FSB, the Domestic Security Service, he uh, embraced uh, that connection between Russian organized crime and the security agencies. And when he then became leader of Russia, that was made ironclad. The Russian organized crime and the security state in Russia is fused together. And it's the, the power of this simply can't be overstated it's it's this is why when you try to say you know maybe the fsb is a bit like the fbi it's completely and utterly different um it would it's in 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 russia the fsb uh facility is is an agency that is designed to and does conduct massive organized crime on the part of putin and his oligarchs Hmm. so it's, it's within that really ugly network um, that I see there just being too many vested interests in giving up uh, that, let's be honest, wealth and power of whoever might come next. If, for example, um, uh, his close ally, uh, Nikolai Patrushev, were to take over, Patrushev is on the Putin's National Security Council. Again, similar background to Putin, thinks similarly, uh, has made similar statements about Ukraine. Uh, What I'm getting at is uh, this is not just a Putin problem. And as you quite rightly point out, if you go back historically, we in in the West, we tend to learn that the Cold War started in the post-war years, that there were a series of calculations and miscalculations on both sides that escalated. That's how we learn it, at least in England, where I'm from, uh, uh, in, in, in school history books. But, but in fact, if you, if you look at the um, Soviet intelligence archives that have been made available, smuggled out to the West, you can see that in the pre-war, pre-Second World War years and during the Second World War itself, again, when uh, Britain and the United States were wholly distracted by fighting the Axis powers, the Nazi Germany, Hitler's Third Reich, what was Stalin doing? Yes, he was um, throwing enormous resources at fighting the Nazis. But as far as intelligence was concerned, he was devoting his prime intelligence resources not against Nazi Germany, but against the, 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 the people that he saw would be the true long-term enemies of the Soviet Union, Britain and the United States. So his prime successes during the Second World War were not against Hitler's Reich, but against his allies, Britain and the United States. And this culminated uh, in stealing the plans um, 
for the world's first atomic bomb as Christopher Nolan so so brilliantly portrays in his film Oppenheimer that came out this summer, as I'm sure your your listeners will remember. The, it, the, the, the film focuses on, or it has a, uh, a role to play of Klaus Fuchs, a German emigre scientist who was a Soviet agent who was there in, in Los Alamos at the Manhattan Project. But there were, there were many other Soviet agents um, who helped to steal the plans for the world's atomic bomb. And this meant that by 1945, right after the detonation uh, of the first test, and then the and then the uh, when the U.S. government dropped the two atomic bombs on Japan, right then Stalin had secretly obtained the plans of the world's first atomic bomb. It then became a, a, a challenge for him of uh, engineering and construction, but he had the secrets. Uh, it accelerated the atomic bomb project so that when they, um, when the Soviets detonated their atomic bomb in 1949, it was an exact replica of the atomic weapon dropped on Nagasaki. And this is the essence of the Cold War, it seems to me. The Cold War is one in which both sides have nuclear weapons. Uh, and in which they cannot make the conflict turn, they cannot allow the conflict to turn into a hot war because that would end in nuclear destruction for both sides. That's the essence, it seems to me, of the Cold War. George, George Orwell um, wrote an extraordinary um, uh, essay in 1945, right after the US dropped the bombs on Japan. Uh, and he, he wrote that without, obviously, the knowledge at the time that uh, Joseph Stalin had obtained those secret plans. But he correctly forecast, as was so much that Orwell wrote about, he quite correctly forecast uh, where things were going. And he talked about in this essay that the two monstrous super states that would be equipped with um, nuclear weapons. He, he absolutely encapsulated it. And he coined the phrase in that essay, the Cold War, because he saw that nuclear weapons were uh, absolutely integral uh, to this. Maybe, Paul, we can put um, that essay, a link to that essay by George Orwell up uh, mm -hmm. when we post this, mm -hmm. because I think your, your listeners will be interested in it. Most um, so this is all a long way of saying that as far as Stalin uh, was concerned, um, the long-term enemies of the Soviet Union were the imperialist powers. And all of that started much earlier than we tend to think of it in the, um, in the West, that the Western powers were on the receiving end of, uh, of a clandestine intelligence onslaught by Stalin and his intelligence services, which looking at it in sort of just very coldly today, I don't see how Western powers could not have reacted and um, created their own grand strategies to counter what Stalin was in the years after 1945 revealed to have previously done. Uh, this was his, the, the level of espionage and the, the acquisition of scientific and technical intelligence, stealing military secrets, was so profound that it was a uh, an attack on both uh, the U.S. and British uh, national sovereignty, and no state in history could have just stood by and say, "Well, that's fine." 
And Paul, this is where I think that the, the parallel, the Cold War parallel with what we've seen with um, Russia and particular China closer to our own time, it just, it, the rhymes of history as Mark Twain is supposedly um, talked about are, are just, they're screaming out and they're, they're not even rhymes. Um, while, um, while the United States was focusing its national security um, priorities on dealing with counterterrorism, this was a golden opportunity for China's intelligence services and Russia's. So the parallels with the first Cold War uh, are so striking with what we're seeing again. And just like in the first Cold War in the years after 1945, Western governments were struggling to um, get their head around and, and catch up with events that had already, the, the, what's the phrase? It's, you know, the, the horse had bolted and they were struggling to kind of ca- catch up with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I see exactly the same parallel with today with um, the horses bolted and we're trying to figure out the extent of damage done. The reference you make to Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer is, is a good one. And and I know our audience will be thinking back on that. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit about Fuchs and, and the theft, because in comparison to today, while, while profound, mm-hmm. absolutely, you think about the FSB, you think about the troll farms, you think about the weaponization mm-hmm. of social media and just almost the quaint nature of stealing some plants. So much has changed. They keep moving the line, as they say. And so maybe yeah. you can talk about yeah. how have these spying methods yeah. changed yeah. with the rise of cyber attacks? And, and that's brought on a whole new level of attack. And while we might not suffer a hot war, we're suffering mightily from some of these other yeah. means. So you're, it's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right that when you look back on it, it is, oh, yeah, I think you're right to use the word quaint, you know, how could this have happened? And, mm. and the, 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 the significant correction that I try to give in the book is that in the narrative pushed by the Kremlin um, in, our, in our own time, that um, Russian intelligence services today see themselves as the heirs of the KGB, mm. Soviet intelligence. And they see... Um, the achievements of the the atom spies like Klaus Fuchs, who you mentioned, and others, as these towering successes of Soviet intelligence. And in a way, of course, they were. But really, you scratch the surface, and what you find is, well, two things. First, a colossal failure of Western security. So in many ways, they were pushing literally at an open door with rudimentary levels of security and background vetting. Um, so it, it, it didn't require master spies to get through, at least on the British side, primitive levels of vetting. Mm. Um, but then more, more significantly, um, if you actually look at the mechanics and the tradecraft used by Soviet intelligence at the time, um, it seems to me that the great successes like the atom spies or indeed the, the five Cambridge spies mm-hmm. who your listeners have probably also um, heard about Kim Philby. Kim Philby and his, his, his group. Uh, they, their success was derived from their own motivations as Soviet agents, their own ideological convictions in communism, which meant that they were prepared to do, to go way beyond the call of duty as it were. 
um, and to put up with extraordinary hard hardships, living dub- double lives. And at key points, this is the key. This is the, the the significant thing. At key points, Soviet intelligence actually badly let them down. We can now see from Soviet records. So the successes um, in that period that today the Kremlin um, sort of shines a light on in kind of hagiographical terms. Actually, when you look at it more closely, uh, the successes were really uh, due to the agents themselves Mm. and despite not because of Soviet intelligence tradecraft. So that's a a significant correction to the picture that's Mm -hmm. being peddled by, Mm -hmm. by Moscow. How things have changed? Well, the thing is that human nature uh, has stayed the same. The technology is different. So um, t- today, um, there are the same underlying reasons why um, somebody with state secrets who has been given access to state secrets might be willing to become an agent of a foreign power, uh, in other words, a spy. Um, it's a, it's, the FBI has an acronym called MICE, Money, Ideology, Coercion, um, or Ego. And generally, that's, that, was, that was an acronym that was come up with um, you know, a long time ago, but it, it holds pretty true. It's very rare that there's just one particular thing. It's usually a combination of the two. Uh, ego, you know, frustrated in, in your job, money, I need money. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's, it, it's usually one or, or a mixture of those factors, but you're absolutely right. The things, the nature of recruitment by foreign powers has changed. So now, uh, Russia and in particular, China has recruited known to have recruited, um, spies, agents in the West through LinkedIn without necessarily Mm. even meeting um, people uh, face-to-face, their recruits face-to-face. So this is done in a kind of virtual way. And it also has to be said that the U.S. government has been really formidable about using the new um, techniques, the new uh, technologies available to change espionage into the 21st century. So a couple months back, the CIA um, produced and published a incredibly slick, a well-made video um, whose target was Russians who were despondent and disgusted by Putin's war and his regime. And the CIA video um, it, it's a series of vignettes. Uh, your listeners, uh, I really recommend having a look at it on on YouTube. It's, it's really very link to that yeah. Too. It's very it's very well made. Mm. Um, and a series of vignettes of people um, who and the question is: Is this really what you signed up for? Is this the way that you wanted your life to be? Um, if it's not. This is how you can reach us. And it gives the how to contact the CIA via the dark web on a, on a secure channel. I mean, that it's the same. What's so striking? That's what your question gets at, Paul, is that it's the same underlying principles of mm-hmm. how agencies go about recruiting others with access to state secrets. But it's now in this new cyber domain. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really what we're seeing is a, 
transformation of the nature of espionage, um, traditional espionage. And that's to say nothing of now the extraordinary developments with commercially available and open source intelligence. That is just, it seems to me, a game changer for national security today compared to even the recent past. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Our guest today is Calder Walton. Calder Walton has written the wonderful new book, just very important book for all of our audience to be paying attention to. The book is titled Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. I can't recommend it enough. Just as you say, Calder Walton, we will put up links to the George Orwell essay. We're going to find the YouTube video. We'll put links so that our audience can find out more information about your new book. Let's talk about China for just a moment because I think – that's kind of the next the next step here and and if the if the horse has bolted well yep. what do we do about china as a global as a global power and yep. how have some of these spying methods changed so that we can take on what china is uh, really forcing in terms of manpower and just uh, our own vulnerabilities here in the west that's right so it's the, the starting point is to is really it seems to me to, to emphasize that this isn't a recent development. Our attention in the West about the nature of Chinese intelligence espionage uh, has sort of coalesced recently in the last couple of years. Um, but in fact, speaking to interviewing CIA officers with deep expertise on China. Um, have, have told me um, emphatically that it was during the height of the war on terror in 2005-2006 when Chinese intelligence undertook an, ons an onslaught uh, directed at U.S. intelligence with the aim of supplanting uh, the U.S. in Southeast Asia. So that was all the way back then. Uh, 2005, 2006, and China's intelligence services have been colossally uh, successful at undermining U.S. intelligence activities in China, winding up a CIA spy network in 2010, 2012, which led to the um, arrest and, and deaths of CIA uh, agents operating there. And it's unclear to me whether the CIA is actually... Um, ever recovered its operations in China after that. Hmm. Like, the, like the first Cold War um, with the Soviet Union, it's, it's an asymmetric uh, fight, challenge, struggle, war. It's asymmetric in the, the open and free uh, societies in the West that we live in are infinitely more easy for 
the intelligence services of authoritarian one-party regimes, the Soviet Union in the past, Russia and China uh, today. We should add in, of course, Iran. Mm. Um, infinitely easier for them to collect intelligence on our open societies and to manipulate public opinion through our open free press than it is the other way around for us uh, on them. The, the level of um, surveillance and the police regimes in China and Russia today would make Orwell um, his mind, his eyes, his eyes boggle. Hmm. I mean, you can't even come up with, um, you know, e even Big Brother uh, fails to um, do 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 justice to the levels of state surveillance um, in China today with um, artificial intelligence driven with um, on um, facial recognition and QR codes to scan in and out. This all makes it essentially well, difficult, if not impossible, for foreign intelligence to collect reliable intelligence on China. So the struggle is profound, it's asymmetric, but it's also, and this is, that's the bad news, I've got some even worse news, I'm afraid, Paul. <laughs> and the even worse news... Hit me with it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's colossally more difficult and more challenging than it even was in the Soviet Union. And then to go back to a word that you used earlier, it, this, the, the, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, by comparison with today, looks almost quaint. The Soviet Union's economy was tiny compared to the U.S. at least. Um, and the Soviet Union could effectively be um, shut off from the outside world. It, it wasn't, we know, at key points, obviously, there was, uh, after the opening, with the, during detente, there wasn't a commercial opening. But um, it was certainly, certainly not the case that the Western world relied on the Soviet Union uh, in, uh, economy in any way. And that is, of course, exactly the opposite uh, with China today, where China's huge economic weight means that it is colossally, I've used that word several times, but I think it, it, it's um, accurate, colossally more difficult um, for the US um, and the Western allies to come up with strategies um, against China because the, 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 our economies are intertwined. And that just makes, yes, it's a Cold War and that both sides are backed by nuclear weapons. It's, uh, you know, and we, we all pray, we all hope that Putin doesn't do what he is threatening to do, which is to use a tactical nuclear weapon over the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, it's a war that therefore can't, like the first Cold War, can't, uh, go hot. But the economic leverage that China has on the West just makes it infinitely more complicated than the Cold War was. So what can we do about it? Well, I hinted at this earlier. It seems to me that the, we're also at this moment of uh, resurgent great powers uh, with Russia and China asserting themselves on the world stage to try to supplant and overturn the US-led international order um, at the same time, we're living through a transformation, the nature of intelligence and national security. And, and that is derived from this profound change in commercially available or open source intelligence. 
So at the towards the end of the Cold War in the 1980s, of the first Cold War, I might say, um, about 80% of the intelligence that that fed into the really the apex of the U.S. intelligence community, the president's daily brief, about 80% of the data, the information that that was contained in the president's daily brief was derived from clandestine secret sources and about 20% from open sources. Now you skip forward to today and those those are, are thought to be exactly reversed. Wow. 80% from openly available sources, 20% from clandestine. And this is, your, your, your listeners um, may be aware of really the sort of extraordinary outfits like Bellingcat, that have done this forensic investigations um, into Russian malign covert activities, including assassinations uh, in, in, in the West. Uh, Bellingcat is, relies on commercially available uh, op- and open source information. Um, we all, whether we like it or not, using our smartphones, um, leave digital dust and digital exhaust, mm-hmm. which if you know where to look and how to look, all can be traced. And this is the, the, the this is a, a game changer for intelligence. Um, we saw this with the um, the beginning of the war in Ukraine, when US and British intelligence um, did a spectacularly successful job of declassifying intelligence about Putin's war plans really in real time. And we, we now know that this was in large part derived because the U.S. government, the intelligence community, was able to, it obviously has collection capabilities from satellites and signals, intelligence co-breaking and, and eavesdropping, which we in the public should have, we have no business knowing about. We shouldn't know about that. Uh, there are important state secrets. But what the U.S. government was able to do was to say, we know um, about these Putin's war plans uh, from clandestine collection, but we can get to the same result uh, through open source by looking at what satellite, commercially available satellites are available. And I've got it on good authority that that was the game changer um, that allowed, that gave the Biden administration and the U.S. intelligence community the confidence to say we can disclose this without blowing any of our um, sources and methods, uh, which are, you know, quite rightly uh, protected by the U.S. intelligence community, um, all, all intelligence agencies. And that was an absolute game changer. Um, and it just shows how things have changed in a very relatively, uh, you know, short period that the kind of technologies that are now commercially available uh, from satellites, um, which, you know, in the 1980s, even in the 1990s, just would have been the absolute crown jewels of any government capabilities, are now, you know, for a relatively small amount of money and even for free, uh, available to anyone with, with, a, with a computer. It's an absolute game changer. So the answer, it seems to me, is with this closed, um, with this asymmetric um, um, struggle between East and West and a clandestine war between China and Russia, is exactly what outfits like Bellingcat are doing, which is using, even in closed 
police states um, that have uh, supposedly secured the great firewalls around them. Even, even in Russia and even in China, it's possible to obtain um, valuable intelligence from commercially available uh, and open source intelligence. And it seems to me that that is how we're going to be able to um, to sort of hit back, strike back uh, Western powers uh, in this asymmetric uh, fight. Um, so that's that's one way. We also the uh, there will continue to be, of course, a role for traditional time honored um, espionage, the recruitment of spies, uh, agents close to the decision makers in Moscow or Be- Beijing. I, again, we, we don't know about this. We hope that if the Western services are doing their job, they are doing exactly this. We also hope, it seems to me that the war in Ukraine um, is so important, of course, for both the East and West. Putin you know, has nailed his reputation to it for it being a quote-unquote success for him. Mm-hmm. It, it's also uh, so important for the West to do everything that we can to support Ukrainians. Um, it's also perhaps a moment that will lead, we can hope, to a renaissance in the belief of democracies and what we, what they stand for. And again, we, we don't know this at the moment for good reasons, but I wouldn't be surprised that when the records come out in due course or you know, when we have uh, congressional investigations about this, that we find that the that Putin's war in Ukraine was actually a massive um, recruitment opportunity for Western agencies to recruit Russians who were totally despondent with um, what Putin stands for um, and the direction that he's taking Russia. Uh, I hope that that's the case, and I hope that uh, that that is revealed one day in records uh, a long time from now when the war is over. Well, your book is is so important, and um, in it, you've you've revealed, you know, Putin's plan to assassinate a CIA informant. CNN has been reporting on this. You talk about the invasion of Ukraine being Putin's intelligence fiasco. I think what I really yeah. enjoyed so much about the book is how relevant it is to today and how much it's made me think about some of these news elements. I read that Kim Jong-un is traveling by armored train to visit Putin on the Pacific coast of, of Russia to discuss arms sales in the Russian war yeah. in Ukraine. Are we getting that information yeah. from the free pe- from the free press? Is that a combination of spying and other elements? How how are we learning about some of these things today? Well, um, it's like the thing is that the traditional um, pre-social media age of news reporting has been splintered, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the traditional um, the, the, the traditional guardians of the public policy um conversations were the newspaper editors and the the the, the anchors on tv shows and radio shows Paul. <laughs> and uh tra- this has been disrupted by social media um 
So where are we getting this information from? It's difficult to say. Um, you know, that, that the war in Ukraine is the first uh, TikTok war, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. we saw it sort of mm-hmm. unfolding in real time. Um, but it seems to me the key thing, and this is actually true in the later Soviet period, um, that it, it's so striking, the parallels with this. So... Uh, in the later po- Soviet period, a Soviet intelligence officer defected to the West, and he was um, an expert in disinformation. He was from the unit in the KGB that pursued so-called active measures, including disinformation. And he pub- he testified publicly um, in Congress, and they asked him, he, he laid out what the KGB did in terms of uh, using forgeries to insert um, a new narrative into public conversations in the West, planting them in, in using the open press, as it were, um, against against ourselves. That we that Western free press became its own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. You could insert forgeries in, and so on. And so he, he he laid out all of the tricks of the trade that the KGB had. And then the question was, okay, well, what do we do about it? What do we in the West do to sort of insulate ourselves from this? And he said, well, it's actually very simple. You need to read widely. You need to, you need to consume your news, not from one source, but from multiple sources. And you need to think and you need to read and you need to listen critically. Don't just accept on face value, what you're reading or hearing, because there might be an element of disinformation on about, he said, you know, particularly about the Soviet Union. But the, but, but his point was um, true in the, in the broader sense. And it just seems to me that's exactly the same issue today. Mm-hmm. Don't accept at face value what you're reading or believing. If it's on the internet, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. It's a, it's a trite thing to say, but it's so quick. Uh, it's so easy to fall into that trap, mm-hmm. you know, when you're scrolling around on Twitter or X or whatever it's called <laughs> late at night and you mm-hmm. see a headline that, by the way, is geared in order to create shock and awe, probably get a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, just having the wherewithal to check where that information is coming from. And in my view, we might actually see a reversion to the, I hope, more traditional forms of, of news dissemination that actually people say, okay, actually in this age of an overload of information, there's something to be said for turning to um, the editorial pages of various newspapers um, where there is a quality check mm-hmm. uh, of information put through. So that's my, uh, that's how I see it. And that's what, how I, I actually am fairly optimistic that we as societies in the West can do that. It's going to be a generational uh, issue to create adequate levels of digital literacy. So my son is just six years old Mm -hmm. and he's going to grow up learning about how to interact uh, with social media and the and the internet in a way that I I obviously never had to. Mm-hmm. This will just be normal. But it, but we absolutely in the U.S. we 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 have to get digital literacy taken seriously on school curricula 
in a way that it is in certainly the Scandinavian countries and some of the Baltic states. Kids, uh, very young age, are, are they are taught about how to read information critically on the internet and what it means. And we really, really need to start doing that in this country, it seems to me. So important. Um, the book, again, Spies the Epic, Intelligence War Between East and West, getting great reviews. The Economist says Calder Walton's Spies is a riveting history of espionage. Today, the Financial Times had a great article uh, on your book, Spies, Russia, China, and the Long Intelligence War with the West. We'll put links so that our audience can find out more about that article. But these are just valuable lessons that apply to the present day. And Calder Walton has been our guest. We so appreciate all that you do. This is just really good stuff, important stuff, Calder Walton. So thank you. We're looking forward to your upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Again, we'll put lots of links up in this particular set of show notes so that our audience can find out more about you and more about your upcoming presentation. But I, I just ask, please, as a favor to all of us, come back. Talk to us again as you do more work like this. Congratulations on the book, but please come back and talk to us about this important subject. I, I know our audience is going to want to hear more. Oh, I absolutely will, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation and look forward to hearing any comments from the listeners. You can always reach me over email or, or indeed on Twitter. Um, so uh, this has been absolutely my pleasure. And as you said, to be continued, I hope. <laughs> to be continued. Thank you so much, Calder Walton. My thanks to Calder Walton for joining today's show. Calder Walton will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up. So please check out the show notes today. For more details, the title of his presentation is Intelligence, the New Cold War. Calder Walton has written the new book, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week.